Well, you can imagine this scenario with me. Young family moves halfway across the world, moves out of the city into a rural setting, moves into a town inhabited by the Manobo people. And as they're doing that, they've got to learn a lot of things. Well, they had to learn some things the hard way. They got called into one of the village elders' huts early on in their stay there, and he had to talk to them about something called anit. You see, some young people in the village had gone past their house and had seen the children talking with a cat and had came and told it to the village elders. And he had to tell them that this, this would bring anit. In other words, it would bring a curse. And then he told them the story about these two boys that had done something that had brought anit upon them, and they got struck by lightning later that day. So they were a little bit concerned because they didn't know what anit or what would cause anit. And so they, they asked him, well, what would cause anit besides talking to cats? And, and he said, well, things like incest and talking to cats. Okay. <laughs> All right, that, those are your first clues. Go on. Well, later on, in the, they, they promised. They said, we'll do our very best to not, not cause anit. Well, later on that week, they received a package from people at home, and it was this little kit where you could basically make a Mr. Potato Head with a real potato. Well, they didn't have potatoes there in the village, so they were using, their kids used onions, and they left them on the table, and they went out to play, and some children came by the house, and they saw these onions that looked like people, and they screamed, Ed Anit Hian, and they ran off and told the village elders, and now they had committed Anit again. Okay, talking cats, building potato heads and incest, which they hadn't done, but that was what they were told. <laughs> later on, they were, a few days later, they were in the garden, and the woman's son was, was plucking up earthworms to go fishing. But in doing so, he also took them over, and he was washing them off very carefully and putting them in a clean bucket to get all the mud off of. And some women were sitting there at the fence going, Edanitian. This is going to cause a knit. <laughs> so now they've got bathing earthworms, so they couldn't figure out what was going on. Well, after some, some thinking and some hard work, they were finally able to come to the conclusion that a knit was something like treating something that's in this category like it's in this category. You don't talk to a cat because a cat is not a person that you talked to. You don't marry a relative. You marry someone who is not a relative but marrying them would treat them like they're in this category. You don't make an onion into the likeness of a person. An onion is something to be eaten. We don't eat people. Well, they needed to test this hypothesis. So when they were back in the States, a child, wanting to be loving to this missionary family, donated a toy to them, and it was a can. It was a jack-in-the-box can. You crank it, crank it, crank it, and out of it popped Popeye eating some spinach. And the guy said... I think this is going to work. So they called the village elders together when they got back, and he said, I don't want to alarm you, but I need your help. So he pulled out the can, and they all said, yeah, this is a can of food, wonderful. And then he did the crank, and out popped Popeye. And you could see the look on all their faces as they sat back. Ed Anit Hian, this will cause Anit. And he knew that they had figured it out finally after all that work, and they quickly disposed of the Popeye toy so that they would not cause any more anit. 
this family had to do a lot of hard work to figure out what it was going to be like to live with these people. What we've been doing in this Sermon on the Mount series, what Jesus has been doing for us, has been teaching us what it's like to be a citizen in the kingdom of heaven. And whether or not we want to admit it, we have to learn, don't we? Just like this family had to go into this village and learn how to live among these people in a way that's going to be culturally acceptable, we're learning by Jesus' teaching here what it's like to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. Think back to the Beatitudes as we started. Jesus defined life in the kingdom. He defined the privileges and the expectations for citizens of the kingdom. In chapter 5, verses 17 to 48, Jesus went through the law. You've heard it said this, but I say to you. In other words, Jesus was exposing what God really cares about, helping us understand what it's like to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. And then in chapter 6, we've been going through and seeing that God looks at the heart. He looks at our motivation for giving. He looks at our motivation for praying. He looks at our motivation for fasting. And these have all been important things, again, in defining what it's like to be in God's kingdom. So I want you to look at our passage for tonight, Matthew chapter 6. Go ahead and open there, because we're going to walk through the text in detail Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 24. I'm going to go ahead and read that text for us. Matthew 6, 19 to 24. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. What we're going to see in this text, the principle for being a citizen of God's kingdom is this. God's servants value him above all else, so they generously invest earthly wealth in kingdom pursuits. Okay? God's servants value him above everything else, so they invest earthly wealth in kingdom pursuits. I'm going to call that a principle of kingdom citizenship. So let's unpack that together. And to unpack that statement, we're going to actually work our way backwards through the text. If you can do that with me. Okay, we're going to start in verse 24 and look at the fact that God's servants value him above all else. Verse 24 again said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You can probably see in there why I've phrased this as God's servants, because it uses that phrase, again, you can't serve two masters, and then at the end, you cannot serve God and money. Servants in the ancient world were not what we think of today as at-will employees, Okay? They, they didn't just come and say, I'd like to be your servant. Okay? This, this was not the same thing. 
the, the term in Greek and the term used over in Hebrew was also the term, same term that was used of a slave. So in some, in some contexts, you can tell, was this person more of a servant or were they more of what we think of as a slave? And how is the, there a continuum between these two? It, it's not always easy to tell. But in the ancient world, it was definitely not this sense of, I go to work every day because I want to, and I have certain rights as an employee. In God's kingdom in the Old Testament, we have lots of laws protecting servants, protecting slaves, which is a good thing because there were lots of abuses of that system. And yet, uh, it was a system that was also beneficial to people. At times, if you ran out of money, what would you do? There was no social welfare system or anything like that. So you could basically hire yourself out, and you could have fulfilling work, and God's law dictated that your, your new master basically provide for you. So you wouldn't starve, and your family wouldn't starve. So you basically put yourself into slavery, into servitude, for the sake of preserving yourself and your family, and this was a good thing, was regulated by the Old Testament. In that context, it also came with a sense of loyalty, belonging to your master, okay? It wasn't like we have this sort of thing, like you work for McDonald's one day and you go over and work for Burger King the other day, you don't really care about who, who you're working for. This was a personal connection. There was, there was a sense of loyalty, a sense of belonging, such that even in Deuteronomy 15, it talks about if you're finally ready to leave your master's house and you just like it so much that you just want to perpetually remain a servant in your master's house, he can take you to the doorpost of the house and drive a nail through your ear into the doorpost to symbolize that you're now part of his household. And you would rather live in servitude to this good master and enjoy life serving and devoted to his family rather than be off on your own. And that was certainly an option for people. Okay? We don't have that system. And so it's sometimes hard for us to understand. What does it mean you can't serve to masters? It's much stronger than just working for something. I want you to notice something else about this too, which you would only notice if you'd been reading quite a bit um, through this text. Back in Matthew 5, 45, it uses the term father. Okay, father came up in, uh, earlier in the text, but it started using the term father, and uh, in verse 48, you'll see that it says, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And then all the way through chapter 6, we see this about, and your father who sees in secret will reward you, and do this for your father who sees and not for the people around you, and your father who sees will reward you. And that goes right up to verse, chapter 6, verse 18. Did you hear the word father read anywhere in our passage? And yet, right when we get down to the next passage, it might say, do not be anxious in your Bibles. Right in verse 26, talks about your heavenly father feeds, and it brings up that language of father again, father, father, father. But in our text, it didn't talk about father. It talked about God, and it talked about masters. So let's notice that as we're, th we're thinking about this, okay? We're talking about being citizens of the kingdom, and we have a good heavenly father that rules over this kingdom, and yet, in another sense, we're, we're, we're children and servants, Okay? We have to be comfortable applying different analogies to ourselves, and I don't think it's an accident that Jesus just left the terminology of father out of this text and replaced it with this idea of master, because he's saying something that's a little bit stronger. There's something that's a little bit harder for us to hear here, 
and we want to pay attention to the language that Jesus is using. He doesn't give us a third option. Notice in verse 24, you cannot serve two masters. You're going to love one and hate the other. You're going to be devoted to one, despise the other. That's it. It's not like you can be buddy-buddy with both of these. You can't say, God's my buddy and money's my buddy, and we just all get along together. He says it's not going to work out that way. Eventually, one of them is going to win out, and you're going to get pulled to one side or the other. One of these will be your master, not your father, your master, and you will serve it. So let's look at these words that he uses in here, right? Hate and love be devoted to and despise. I think the one that probably is more, most difficult for us is that word despise, right? Despise makes us think of it as being synonymous with the word for hate, right? So you're going to hate one and love the other word, you'll be devoted and you'll despise. And that's actually the right parallel that we're supposed to do, but the word despise actually is a little bit softer than that. It actually means more like to look down on or to devalue something. And you don't have to just take my word for that. If you want to flip there, you can. Matthew 18, Matthew 18, verse 10, the same word gets used. Jesus says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father. So I don't think Jesus thinks that most people are going around hating children. <laughs> but he's saying, don't put them down like they're nothing. Don't devalue children. And then he gives a reason for that. Okay? So the word despise, actually if you look it up in the English dictionary, it has an, an element of where it can be softer like this. And I think that's how we're supposed to take it here. Okay? Because that makes a, a good partner with devoted to. You're going to be devoted to one thing and therefore you're going to devalue the other thing. We've been doing a lot of traveling lately, and whenever we travel over mealtime, at some point along the way, Rachel will kind of give me a nudge like, so what are we going to do for lunch? And I'll just kind of give her a look, and then I'll just keep looking back at the road and keep driving, as in, you know what we're going to do for lunch. <laughs> you see, when you drive, you know, there's those blue signs at every exit that tell you kind of all the, the food places you can stop and everything. I don't need to look at those. When we drive, we stop at Chipotle. That's where we have lunch. I so value my lunches at Chipotle, I don't even need to look at the other signs. I mean, McDonald's, forget it. Kentucky Fried Chicken, sorry, I know, Dan. <laughs> but you know what? I, I, I don't even look at the signs. I just tell Rachel, get on the phone and figure out where the closest Chipotle is, and we just got to figure out how to get the kids there so that the kids don't you know, freak out before we get there and get too hungry, Okay. I'm devoted to those lunches at Chipotle, which causes me to devalue these other things, or as the word here is, to despise them, to put them aside, to even just put them out of my mind. What Jesus is saying to us here is that God's servants, if we're truly members of the citizen of the kingdom of God, we can't serve him and money at the same time. He has to be the most valuable thing to us. And in him being the most valuable thing, everything else will seem far less valuable. Okay? We'll understand the value of money. There's one thing to that. But in our hearts, it won't hold the same place that God does. That's why I love the songs we got to sing early on. 
Christ is mine forevermore. And if that is true of a citizen of God's kingdom, everything else goes way down in our perception of its value. So God's servants value him above all else. But then if you remember my statement, I said we value him above all else, so we give generously of earthly wealth to kingdom pursuits. How do we get there in this passage? Well, when we moved here five years ago, this wasn't my first time coming to Kentucky. I had actually come back when I was early on in college with a good friend, and we visited Mammoth Cave Park. And being adventurous young 20-year-olds, we wanted to go do one of those hardcore spelunking tours through the caves. So we got dressed in the coveralls, and we were with the, the group, and they take you up to this very intimidating-looking ladder where you're going to climb down into the dark and turn your headlamp on, and, and you start going through the caves. And, and we were going through there. It was quite exciting. And as we were getting through the caves, at one point, our, our tour guide stopped us, and we were all kind of sitting stretched out in a chain along a little under subterranean creek. And she crossed over the creek, and she was telling us about some of the geology, and then she said, what I'd like everyone to do is on the count of three, turn off your headlamps. And don't speak, don't move, just turn off your headlamps. And when we did, it felt like being swallowed up. Like when you, when you take a warm blanket on a cold day and just you can feel it wrap all around you, except it wasn't a warm flannel blanket this time, it was darkness. Suddenly the person that was only two feet away from me felt miles away. I felt utterly alone in the dark and all I could hear was that running water. She had to sit like that for what felt like minutes. It was probably only about one minute and we turned our lamps back on. And then we continued crawling through and actually crawled out right in front of another tour group that was doing the kind of walking tour and they were quite surprised at us, the little hole that we had crawled out of. But I'll never forget the feeling of being in that kind of darkness. Jesus uses this illustration of darkness to help us understand generosity here. <laughs> How those two go together. Let's look at it. Verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. Okay, so the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of Light. Oh yeah, a lamp gives off light. Good. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Okay, bad lamp. You don't get a lot of light from a bad lamp. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Well, I understand the imagery of a lamp and darkness. I don't understand what this has to do with generosity, Jesus. Why is this sandwiched between two things about money? Well, if you think with me for a moment, the eye, our, our sense of perception, is the lamp of the body. So he's talking about the eye, and I think that's synonymous here for our desires. Our desires. These desires either fill us with light, or they're going to leave us in darkness. Now, why do I, why do I think that? Well, because of the language he uses next, okay? Let's skip down to where it says, if your eye is bad... Actually, the word could also be evil, if your eye is evil. If you have the evil eye, 
This could be, in a sense, greedy, envious, covetous. Actually, in the Middle East, a lot of places you'll go around and you'll see people put these little blue talismans that look like eyeballs, and sometimes they'll build them into their homes, they'll wear them on their person, because the evil eye helps you avoid curses that people may call on you. Someone may look and see you drive in a fancy car and they may covet you and call a curse down on you. But if you have a little blue eye hanging from your car, it will ward off that curse. Or someone may walk past your house and see, wow, this is a nice house, what it, you know, and they cast a curse on you. But if you have these built into your home, it drives away that curse. And something a little bit outside of our experience, perhaps. We all know what it means to look at something and want it in a bad way. But where do I get that from evil eye? <laughs> Again, don't take my word for it. Let's look over at Matthew 20, verse 15. Okay, this is still Jesus talking. He's giving a parable. Matthew 20, 15. And you remember, it's the, the, the story of the laborers in the vineyard where the master goes out at the beginning of the day, hires people to work in the vineyard. He goes out later in the day, hires people, goes later, hires people. And at the end of the day, he pays all of them the same, starting from those that only worked an hour back to those that worked all day. And he pays each of them the same amount. And at the end, they're complaining about this. And he says, am I, am I not allowed to do, with, do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity. The, the literal for that begrudge there is, do you have an evil eye towards my generosity? Okay, that's actually how the King James translated. Is your eye evil because I'm good? Okay, it's the exact same phrase we have in this section. In other words, these people were looking at this guy like, why doesn't he give us more? You can almost see the curses rising up in their heart, like this guy's a terrible master because he's paying them the same as us. They had an evil eye towards him. They were getting greedy, even though they, they agreed to work for that amount. So what about the healthy eye then? Okay, I could just say, well, if a bad eye is greedy, then a good eye is generous. Well, that actually is uh, one way. I tried to look up some other options to see, could, uh, does Jesus help us with that? But the only place this word for healthy eye is used is here and the parallel passage in Luke. It's not used anywhere else in the Bible. But a very similar word is. A very similar word is in the Greek, and it's used in Romans 12, verse 8. The one who contributes should do so in generosity. That's the same word that's translated here as healthy. Or in 2 Corinthians 8, 2 through 5, it says, that the Macedonians were in a severe test of affliction, but their abundance of joy and extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Same word that we have here. Okay? So these Macedonians, they sure had a healthy eye, didn't they? They had this sense of overwhelming generosity. Think of, it, think of this analogy like this. The generous eye... If you have generous desires, it's a good lamp. What does a good lamp do? Many of you are probably lighting candles, right, this time of year. A good candle burns, and in doing so, it burns itself up, right? The lamps back in the Middle East were these round ceramic pots with like a, a little spout here with a wick coming out, and you would light it, and it would suck the oil up, and you could pour more oil into the top. 
but in, in, light, in giving off light, it had to use up its own oil. It had to be generous to give of itself. But what it did was it gave light to everyone in the house in giving itself up. A generous desire, like those Macedonians had, fills us with light, which is also a symbol for life. If you want to have life flowing in you, having a generous desire will do that. Let's flip it now. Jesus says the bad lamp does what? It doesn't give up its oil. It holds it in. And when a lamp holds the oil back, is it going to give off much light? There's going to be darkness. It's going to give off less and less and less till that wick is completely burned up. And in the darkness, everything shuts down. When I was back in that cave... I don't think I would have been able to find my way out. I would have crawled. I would have stumbled. I would have tripped and probably fallen into the stream at some point. I don't know if I could have gotten out of that cave in such darkness. We become immobilized. We're lost. It's the very opposite of light and life. Generosity leads to life. That's what this imagery of the lamp is supposed to teach us. Generosity leads to life. Citizens of the kingdom, God's servants value him above all else, so they're generous. They have life and light characterizing them. So let's look at the last part of our kingdom principle. God's servants value him above all else. So they generously invest earthly wealth in kingdom pursuits. Look at the top verses with me. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Don't do that. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. I think that makes sense to us, doesn't it? The basic logic, right? Don't put it in the bank where they just take your money from you and then just kind of set it on a table in the back? Put your money in a bank where they're going to put it in a safe, they're going to triple lock it, and they're going to have guards at the door to make sure your money is safe. That's where you want to put your money. We all understand that logic. But I think that's the basic logic of what's going on here, right? We can all understand that. Invest your money where it's going to be the safest. But the deeper logic comes in the very next verse. The reason Jesus wants you to invest your money in a better place is because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, it's not just about a better investment. It's about where your heart is going to reside. Jesus doesn't care about your money. Jesus cares about your heart. And because he cares where your heart is, he gives instructions about how we should use our money. I think there's something beautiful and dangerous in this. Beautiful because money can be something that we use to advance the kingdom. We can care for the oppressed. As we heard about on Wednesday night, we can, we can help orphans with, through various kinds of means. We can do acts of love to those around us. But it's also dangerous. Dangerous that we live in a thorn-infested society. I remember back when I was 
the global outreach director at a church, and I watched a video that happened after some Christians were killed in a, a uh, Middle Eastern country. And one of the pastors being interviewed on this video was a friend of those that were killed. He knew them personally. And he started at the end of the film to speak directly to us through the camera. And what he said was, please pray for us. We do appreciate your prayers because we're facing this kind of difficult persecution where our friends are being killed. And it was completely unexpected. They were actually killed while hosting a Bible study. And some of the people that attended the Bible study rose up and, and killed them. He said, but we pray for you too. Because we know what kind of thorn-infested world you live in. He, was speaking, he knew he was speaking specifically to Americans at that point. What was he talking about? Matthew 13, we get the parable of the four soils, right? The path, seed that's sown on the path, the seed that's sown among the, th- of the rocks, the seed that's sown among thorns, and then in the good soil. He said, you live in this thorn-infested part of the world. What did Jesus say about those thorns? He called them the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. The thorns seek to choke the life out of us. See, our wealth, our possessions can do so much good. They can do so much good. Money itself isn't evil. But Jesus does point out that it's pretty deceitful. It lies to us. See, money starts to teach us to trust in ourselves. It tries to rearrange our priorities. And if we don't become the master over it, it will come the master over us. And when those thorns grow up, what did Jesus say happened? The plants didn't produce any fruit. They were dead. The thorns choked them out. Jesus doesn't care about our money. He cares about our hearts. He cares that we don't live comfortable, self-absorbed lives and then die eternally. The way we battle this invasion into our souls is to kill these weeds. And the way that we kill weeds, the way we master our money, is to invest it generously in kingdom pursuits. We recognize the kingship of Jesus by the way we use our riches. That's what I think he's getting at here with storing up treasures in heaven. So how do we do that? Uh, I remember hearing a message that John Piper spoke at the Lausanne Congress on World Evangelization back in 2010. He said this, Christians care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. Christians care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. So we don't, it's not just about being generous. Citizens of the kingdom are generous toward kingdom pursuits. The treasure is stored up in heaven. We invest it in heaven when we invest it in the work of God's kingdom. So a couple quick tips as we move to conclude here. Maybe you've never thought about this. Looking at the group here tonight, I'm guessing most of you have, but I'll just mention them briefly. Think in these categories of giving. You should give to your local church. 
Luke 10, 17, 1 Timothy 5, 18. You should give to your local church. You should remember the poor, Galatians 2, 10. And I believe you should give towards God's work around the world, towards missions. And don't berate yourself if you don't have some sort of giving in all those categories, but consider what does it look like for me to be investing in God's kingdom in those ways, my local church, remembering the poor, and giving towards God's global mission, towards those that have not yet heard the message of Jesus. We have to cultivate our giving. You see, the average American gives about 3% of their income. Israelites in the Old Testament were instructed to give 10 to 30% of their income. Different society, different time. But we're encouraged in the New Testament to consider generosity, to have a really healthy lamp, to desire to be generous. So we set goals. You know, I've never made progress lifting weights at the gym without a goal. So for for you, you, you may already tithe part of your income. You may give a tenth of your income. But maybe you have maybe you can set a goal that would push you, that would make you stronger, more light giving. Maybe you don't tithe 10% of your income. You're not going to start doing that overnight, but you could start working at it. This past week, I picked up 445 pounds off the ground one time. I couldn't have done that three years ago. And you're not going to just be able to start giving a bunch of your income, but you can start, and you can start working towards it by God's grace as he leads and as you submit your resources, all of your earthly wealth to him. And Philippians 4.19 says, My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And that's what we're going to hear about after Christmas when we come back because Jesus addresses that. But Jesus, if I start giving all this away, how am I going to have clothes and food and all this? And that's what the rest of the Sermon on the Mount goes on to talk about here. So that, that is coming. Let me end with this story. When I was first starting out in doing ministry work, I would do some of it outdoor evangelism in New York City. And a group asked, us, asked myself and a friend to come for the whole summer and to do outreach ministry and to lead teams doing outreach ministry in the parks and on college campuses. We each had to raise $1,000. We thought that was so much money we had to raise to go and do this. And we just, we were, I remember talking to him, like, I don't know how we're going to get, how are we going to get people to give us that much money, just send two college guys to New York City. Well, one night my pastor called us into his office and he said, guys, don't worry about the money, someone took care of it for you. And later on we found out, it was just this guy in our church, he's an IT guy, works by himself most of the days, we're on computers and all this, really shy, but he loved God. Every Wednesday you'd see him at prayer meeting, every Thursday you'd see him out sharing the gospel on the college campus. And we talked to him, and we just said, thank you for helping us do this. And he said, thank you. I wanted to be a part of what you guys are doing. And that's all he said. But I'll never forget that. That summer, George came to faith. See, it wasn't just my, myself and my friend who helped lead George to faith in the gospel, but this guy who was back working in the IT room all by himself was part of that work because he was generous in helping advance the kingdom of God. God's servants value him more than anything. So they're generous in investing earthly wealth in kingdom pursuits. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you care about our hearts more than you care about money. You don't need money. 
You're the king of kings and lord of lords. You own everything in the universe. It's all yours, including us, including all that we have. I pray that in this coming year, you would teach us, everyone here, how to grow in our generosity, that we would have a more healthy, a more vibrant outlook on life and giving towards the kingdom, that we would grow in this way, that our light might shine before men, that we would store up treasures in heaven, that we would securely say, you are our master and nothing else. Thank you that you are going to help us with this. We don't have to do it on our own. And we thank you in Jesus' name.